You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Is America at least winning the war on tobacco? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Distinguished Professor of Health and Healthcare, Dr. Stephen Schroeder of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He is Director of the Smoking Cessation Leadership Center and former President and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Dr. Schroeder, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be with you. So how are we doing? Are we winning? Are we coming close? Are we doing anything? Well, it's one of those glasses getting more full, but it's not as full as it should be. In general, I would say we are on a winning track, but the slower we go, the more unnecessary deaths there are. So I'm impatient, but still reasonably happy. What kind of trends are we seeing in the U.S.? Adult smoking is at a modern low. Men's smoking rates are down to about 23% from a high of 55% in the mid-1950s. Women's smoking rates went up and then are coming down again. They're down about 18.5%. Overall population, about 20.5%. And teenage smoking is at about a 28-year low. That's the good news. The bad news is we're still losing 440,000 people a year from smoking, which dwarfs anything else. How does U.S. compare to other countries around the world? Are we way better or are we way worse? Well, we're probably overall in the bottom being good, bottom quarter, but we're much better for men than for women, even though men have higher smoking rates. Countries that are more liberated, Scandinavia, etc., tend to have higher smoking rates. The highest rates for women are in Norway, if you can believe that, whereas Asian and Arabic countries have quite low rates. But we've been coming down, and we've inspired other countries uh, with things like smoke-free public places. If you go to a bar in Dublin... Ireland now, and ask for a glass of Guinness Stout, you will get that, but you can't light up. you got to go outside. No one would have ever thought that even five years ago. Right. And the Irish and the Italians and the Welsh and the English are taking cues from our states and our local cities going smoke-free. So let's say we get to a, a smoke-free society. I have a feeling, though, that we've got some pretty nasty air out there. How do we attack that? I know it's off the topic, but it seems like we're focusing on one thing. We miss the whole forest. Well, but the forest of smoking is just so much bigger than the forest of impure air. It's incredible. I mean, it's true that smog and air pollutants make asthma worse and all that, but boy, it would be a luxury to only have to concentrate on that. There's just nowhere near the amount of damage from smoking, both first-hand smoking, that is smoking by the smoker, and also second-hand smoking. Those 440,000 deaths that I mentioned include 50,000 deaths from second-hand smoke. Let's talk about what it is actually in the cigarette smoke that is so damaging, because it's not the nicotine. Well, it's interesting. You look on the back of a pack of cigarettes, and you can't tell the ingredients in the smoke. There are several thousand of them. A number of them are proven carcinogens. Carbon monoxide clearly is the issue. But people think it's the stew of all the nasty chemicals that are in smoke. What about in the old days when they smoked tobacco? I mean, were they getting a purer product back then? Or, you know, have we contaminated cigarettes? Is tobacco the enemy or is it all the crap they mix in with it? Well, that's a good question, too. And nobody knows the answer. But there are two differences between the old-fashioned tobacco and the current one. One is when you had to roll your own cigarettes, it took a long time. So it was hard to smoke more than 10, 12, 15 cigarettes daily. Now, of course, that they're mass-produced, and that started at the time of the 20th century, it became possible to carry around a pack of cigarettes and to have as many as three or four packs daily. I mean, most people don't smoke that much, but that's what happened. So that actually lung cancer 
in their early 20s was really pretty rare. If the pathologist at the Mayo Clinic found a case of lung cancer in 1925, he'd call everybody down, look at this rare illness. Of course, that doesn't happen now. The other thing that's different now is that the people who make the cigarettes spike them to make sure that the nicotine content is higher so that especially new smokers get hooked more. Mm -hmm. So those are the difference from when the uh, Native Americans were smoking it back in the 18th century. What have you found in your career that's the most effective strategy to kind of get people to quit or at least reduce smoking rates? There's several ways to help people quit. The two most important are to make them pay more. And the way to do that is from local and, and federal taxes. Federal taxes have been frozen for quite some time, but a lot of states have raised their taxes, and that's a wonderful deterrent to have people either quit or smoke less. The second is clean public indoor air. So uh, you've seen these uh, wretched people smoking out of doors in very cold weather during the winter. Uh, that's an incentive. A third one is to help smokers quit with both counseling and drugs. And we now have three classes of drugs that help people smoke. And a fourth one is counter-marketing, like in the Truth Campaign and many of the campaigns during the state. So all of those have mixed together to help drive those numbers down, which is really great news. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Schroeder, director of the Smoking Cessation Leadership Center at UCSF. Dr. Schroeder, you mentioned taxing cigarettes. How does a state go about doing that? I imagine different states have different taxes. Are certain states more effective in getting their people to quit smoking? It won't surprise you to know that the states with the lowest tax rates are states that have a more potent lobby, uh, mm -hmm. people who grow the tobacco leaf. But virtually every state has been raising their taxes mainly as a way to get revenue and not have to raise property taxes or, or income taxes. The state, I think, now with the largest tax is Rhode Island. I think New Jersey is second. Virginia was lowest with 2.5 cents per pack, but they've raised theirs too. There are two ways that a state can raise its taxes. One is to have the legislature pass a bill, and the other is to have a uh, public ballot measure, which California did in the 1980s. I think it was one of the first states to actually do that. Did you ever have a chance to see the movie Thank You for Not Smoking? I read the book first, which I actually thought was better, but then I saw the movie, too, and they were both brilliant. Christopher Buckley is just a brilliant satirist. Do you think that was a pretty accurate representation of the lobbying forces we face? I actually do. The movie talked more about the spin, and the book actually got into more of the uh, details. But yes, um, deny, spin... Uh, and it's interesting, people are now thinking that the uh, oil companies may be doing some of those same things, trying to sponsor research to say there really isn't in, any global warming. So there are echoes of that, and thank you for smoking. We don't seem to learn very well as a society. Well, we actually do. I mean, I'm, I'm normally sort of a cynic, but I'm impressed with uh, how far this country has come on smoking. My parents were smokers, and in their era, smoking was sort of an upper-class habit, Nowadays, the rate of smoking among doctors is as low as 2%. We sometimes think of nursing as a high-smoking uh, group, but in fact, nurses are now down to about 15%. The better educated you, you are, the less likely you are to smoke. So there's a real stigma for smoking. And, and now we're facing an epidemic of people being overweight, and people are wondering uh, whether there are lessons learned from the attack on smoking for that area. How do you think the United States is presenting itself in the world in terms of uh, promoting smoke-free public facilities? 
Are we a model to be recreated? Is it working? Well, we're doing some things good and some things not so good. I mean, one thing that we're doing good is we're, we've had these state laws and these local laws to make people smoke-free. We haven't done that as, as a country. So countries like Ireland and Italy and England and Wales have sort of started behind us, and now they're leapfrogging over us so that their whole country is. Other countries have done things like put graphic warnings on a pack of cigarettes. Our country hasn't done that because it takes an act of Congress. Mm-hmm. The uh, people who make cigarettes are quite powerful in Congress, so we haven't done that yet. There is something called the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which has been ratified by 192 countries, but our country hasn't signed it yet, so we haven't taken over that. And, of course, we're very aggressive in marketing cigarettes overseas, and I've had really predatory practices in marketing it to young people in the Philippines and, and elsewhere. So our world scorecard is mixed. Yeah, the United States is historically not so good at uh, spreading good messages throughout the world. We're not practicing what we're preaching. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about those things that appear on cigarette boxes in the rest of the world. Can you share some of the things or some of the images that we don't see in the United States? Well, in Canada, they have four or five rotating labels, one of which is just a mouth ravaged by gum disease, one of which is a coronary that's very narrowed, one of which is a gross lung cancer, and they're big. I mean, they take up the whole back of a pack of cigarettes. In Brazil which is very worried about sort of male macho stuff. They have a limp cigarette, dramatizing the fact that smoking can make you uh, impotent. England has uh, sort of graphic signs. Many of them have very large warnings uh, saying smoking can kill you. With ours, you have a little tiny message that most people can't even read that says something like, smoking may not be the best thing you you can do or something like that, and nobody reads it. You brought up the impotence card, and I think that would be a great way of stimulating young men to quit smoking if they were aware of that. Well, young men think they're going to live forever and be shot by a jealous husband at age 90, so they're not (laughs) worried about about impotence yet. Is it the vascular disease that causes the impotence, or is there something unique to uh, cigarette smoke that does it? It's the accelerated atherosclerosis that hits the penile artery. So what else should we be doing, Dr. Schroeder? What's left in the U.S. to kind of put the last few nails in the coffin? Well, what's amazing to me is given the ravages uh, that smoking exerts on the public's health, how little public outcry there is. There's no race for the cure. There's no brown ribbon. More women die of lung cancer than of breast cancer and yet you don't have any any organized movement. And I think it's because of stigma. It's really easy to get up on Oprah and say, I've got breast cancer and I'm going to beat it, and you, you get hugged and all the women cheer. If you say, I've got lung cancer, the first question is, did you smoke? And then the unspoken thought is, you made a stupid decision. Mm-hmm. The answer to that, and I'm hoping that doctors feel the same way too, because I know so few doctors smoke, we tend to, when we see a patient, think, you know, that was a bad, bad move. Uh, Most smokers get hooked in their early to mid-teens. The judgment centers of the brain don't get fully myelinated until you're in your early 20s. So um, don't be too harsh on someone who got hooked at at age 15. Think of your own teenagers and how badly they drove and what stupid other things they did. Don't be so harsh and judgmental on them. Exactly. Cut them some slack. What do I say when I have a patient that says, hey, my grandmother smoked her whole life and she lived till a ripe old age of 95 and didn't get lung cancer? Tell them that some people drive when they're drunk and don't get killed, but would they want to be in a car with a drunk driver? Um, 
that it's just it makes the odds much much worse and that your grandmother was harming her family by exposing them to secondhand smoke and putting them at risk for subsequent cancers and for and for heart disease any last thoughts you'd like to share with the audience before we let you go I think that one of the reasons our society has made such great progress is because medical workers, in particular doctors, themselves have modeled as non-smokers and um, don't give up. It's really a discouraging thing to see that smokers are often keep smoking, but most of them who try to quit do quit, and uh, it may be the most important thing you can do. So thanks for having me on, and let's keep working and make the smoking rates keep going down. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Schroeder. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. 